0: All right. Uh, well, I'll just go ahead and there's in the, ha- in the chat, there's the handout if you didn't already get it. Uh, so you can follow along. Like I said, that's just, or I think it's the easiest way just to see all the scriptures that we're going to be talking about. Um, so we're talking about hell, which is a uh, fun time. Um, and I kind of centered around the ideas that uh, the question of does the, does the does hell torment or destroy or purify? I, because you can see uh, all of those in Scripture in, in certain ways and just kind of figure out how to fit that together and make some sort of cohesive picture of all this, um, right? We can find them all in Scripture, so we got to think about the nature of God uh, as revealed in Christ um, to, to make sense of it. Um, and you know, we have to acknowledge sometimes that we're just privileged when we're privileging one view, right, we're never just reading scripture, we're always interpreting, right, that's not bad, we just have, what's bad is when we don't acknowledge that, um, so how we read scripture is as important as what's in scripture, and that's kind of a lot of what we were talking about on Sunday, that we read through the story of Jesus, and that shows us what's what's central, and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm trying to be as neutral as possible, although uh, I, I kind of push back on, uh, you know, things that everybody already thinks, because You already know that, Um, but if you're going to disagree with a view, I want you to be able to disagree with the best version of it, right? Uh, If you're rejecting something, happens, and uh, I mean I'm guilty of this too, is we reject kind of a uh, a misunderstood misunderstood version of a of a belief or or you know in any sphere. Uh, So at least know what it is if if you're disagreeing with it. Uh, So last week we uh, we talked some about the uh, common biblical language of destruction is kind of the, the end of the unrighteous, right? Um, or they perish, right? I mean, that's there in uh, John 3:16, as we saw uh, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Um, so again, we want to just in some, uh, when possible, take things at face value and then go from there. Um, but at face value, perish, this means you're gone, right? Not that you, Persist forever in a state of torment, destruction, right? You don't destroy something forever, it's, it's destroyed. And so that that is a very common image that uh, Paul uses a lot. Um, and so, you know, that's obviously a, a picture that's out there. Um, I don't know if we wanna have reactions to that, you know, last week, kinda like this week, I'm just gonna be presenting a lot of information and, you know, it's in the coming weeks, a lot of time to really uh, have questions and things about that, but uh, that all seemed to make sense. Uh, I don't know if anyone's reflected on it a little bit more since then or has thoughts on right, as, destruction as being just the end, just just gone. Uh, so that's one idea. And then the, another thing we talked about last week that's going to be important for all of this is what we do with the word that is typically translated eternal or everlasting. Right? What we saw was that... Uh, Ionios, which is the Greek word, doesn't necessarily mean that it's just going on forever and ever and ever, right? That it's about the age, it's a word that means it's related to the age to come rather than this present age that we live in, right? That's kind of in the Hebrew and then uh, biblical mindset. That's kind of the way they thought about time. We, we live in this age, but there's going to be the age to come. Uh, and so it's just referring to that, that time. So it's more about what kind than how long. Right. So eternal isn't necessarily the best translation because that just implies how long it lasts. I mean, yes, it is eternity, but it's not about like day after day, you're going through the same thing. It's it's more that it's this time rather than, than now. And so it's a different approach to it. So instead of eternal, you can read it as of the age or age lasting. Uh, so this week, um, we're going to be a little more theological uh, rather than like, diving into specific passages, Uh, we will look at scripture through this, but uh, we're thinking more about the nature of God this week uh, and the nature of concepts like justice or goodness or love, right, and how those relate to God's nature. Justice, I think, is kind of the big thread for a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, What does it mean for God to be be just and for the end to be just? Uh, So... uh, a scripture that we're going to use to kind of uh, as a case study to frame a lot of this is from Matthew 25, uh, just in verse 46, right? This is the parable of the sheep and the goats, right? Whatever you did for the least of these you did for me, right? Jesus is is, is presenting himself as this King at the end. Uh, But verse 46, the very end, we get the fate, right? Um, So for the goats, these will go away into, uh, my translation says, Eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life, right? Um, And I assume most will say eternal punishment there. Um, Let me know if you have something else, but that's generally how that gets translated. Um, And so we're going to look at both of those two words, eternal punishment, and see what are some different ways you can understand that. Um, But if you just read that phrase that we have in most English translations, what, what does eternal punishment imply to you? What view of hell does that sound like?
1: It isn't going to be good if you're going to be, <laughs> yeah. all be fine forever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's like it's going on forever and ever and ever. Right. That's that same word, eternal, anios. Um and punishment. Right? I mean, that, we tend to, I think most of us just naturally read that as the ongoing torment or even torture that's just lasting forever and ever and ever. Uh, now, we've already seen, right, that though, that, however, that word eternal doesn't necessarily mean that it's just on and on and on. It's just the punishment of the age to come, right? Uh, Again, that could mean that it still is going on and on and on forever, but it doesn't have to mean that, right, it's kinda, we're just trying to see more possibilities with this. Um, And so, age-lasting punishment, whatever that is, the punishment of of the coming age, as opposed to, I guess, punishment now,
1: right? So So you're saying, So you're saying eternal is not the same as infinity.
0: Not necessarily. Yeah. The word that we translate doesn't necessarily just mean infinity, right? Maybe it's even just a different kind of time. that's maybe one way to understand it. I think we talked about that before that, like, if heaven is just every day, you wake up and you go do whatever fun thing you want to do. If it's infinite, you actually would be bored of anything eventually. So I think we need to think of time in a different way in, in the age to come. All right, so like I said, we'll come back to that passage to see what are different ways that, that could fit, right? And that could also fit in the uh, destruction uh, metaphor or idea as it's the punishment is you're destroyed and that lasts for the whole age, right? You're destroyed and then for the rest of the age, you're gone, right? So it can work for both of those two so far. Um, but, you know, as we talk about hell, I mean, I think the common view, the traditional view is of the eternal conscious torment, right? The infernalist view, it's sometimes called. And, you know, sometimes I wonder if there's a part of us that actually uh, wants that or likes that that view of hell, right? Uh, my my uh, subheading here is give me hell. Um, you know, so why, so why do we think some people get fired up when uh, this uh, approach to hell is, is challenged. You know, I personally think like, well, you know, I've got a list of people that I might want <laughs> that's probably not the best mindset, but, uh, that's just,
1: it's just honest. Um, yeah that's, yeah, that's what I was going to say. There, there may be, uh, some people in my life or that have been in my life that I would kind of like for that punishment to be eternal.
0: Yeah. <laughs> they deserve it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or people through history, right? Some pretty terrible people. Um, so think about why we would want that. Uh, I've thought of some reasons, and, and after I've talked about it, if you think of others, let me know. But one is, well, it's an evangelistic tool, right? Uh, the fear of hell, in one sense, is, is very motivating. Uh, maybe some of you, I know, we probably know some people that that was one of the big reasons why they got baptized, is because they don't want to burn. Um, and so if that was influential to us, then that's obviously uh, pretty important. Um, To that, I would say, you know, fear is, can be effective, but it's not the best motivator, uh, especially not in the long term. And as I said last week, we're supposed to be preaching good news, not preaching bad news with a way out, with fire insurance, all right, Um, which is is kind of that approach to the gospel. It's not what you really see, uh, for example, the apostles doing in the book of Acts. Um, And so, if we're thinking of that as like the foundational way of spreading of the good news, maybe we should take more of a page from them. Another reason we might want to stick with this view is, well, it's just traditional, right? Um, it's, it's what we're used to. and That's um, not a bad thing to have traditions and, and what we've always taught, but at the same time, we want to have humility about that and always be willing to come back and say, well, is this really what scripture is trying to say? And not just accept the, easy, or the the given answer, right, that everybody knows. Um, I mean, this is, we're a restoration movement, right, so we want to always be trying to restore God's true vision and not think that we ever fully got it all, Um, and again, some of these traditional ideas of hell really aren't biblical, they just come from other uh, traditions, other sources, right, like Dante's Inferno is a big one, Um, right, these images we associate with, with scripture, but they may not be in there as much as we think, Uh, Another reason is that I see sometimes is it's honestly maybe a sense of superiority, right? It's like, well, we win, right? We get to go to the good place and you're going here. Um, It's kind of this dualistic mindset that says, well, somebody has to lose for me to feel good about my win, which again is a little problematic. Um, And some, again, uh, not accusing anyone, but I have seen this where people almost seem to take pride in believing in a difficult idea, right? I have greater faith because I believe in this thing that doesn't make sense. I, I think that's kind of not the best view of what faith is, uh, or that people want to feel like they're tough instead of touchy-feely. And you know, these alternative views that we're talking about, um, I, they're not coming from a touchy-feely place. Okay. But then uh, another idea of why, why we want this, this idea of hell is there's a need for justice. And I think this is probably the most important, and actually that's one we're gonna come back to. Um, But my my question there is, how just is infinite torment or torture, right? This ongoing pain forever and ever, ever. Does that punishment fit the crime? Uh, That's a question I think we need to wrestle with. Now on the flip side is the view of, uh, it's called universalism, right? That everyone is saved. And uh, we probably have some objections to that as well, right? Uh, all roads lead to heaven is one way that some people might, might talk about it. Um, so one objection there, and again, if, uh, hopefully I can think of all of them, but if, if you think of others after I've gone over it, let me know. But one is, well, then that means our beliefs don't really matter, right? Believing in Jesus is just as good as believing in uh, Buddha or whoever, uh, and it makes what Jesus did irrelevant. And uh, to that, I would say that if, if we're talking about that kind of universal salvation, I think we're right to reject that, right? Um, and those who do take that view, uh, they, they do and say that it's through Christ that it happens. But yeah, we're, we're not talking about that simple sort of like, oh, believe whatever you want it all, we're all going to the same place. I, that's not uh, the real view there, right? That's one of those, uh, you know, straw man kind of ideas. Um, another objection to everyone being saved is then there's no consequences. There's no stakes, right? Why believe in this, right? We kind of need some sort of incentive to, to make the good choice. Um, and that's true as well, although we could point out something we said last week, which is, well, there are consequences in this life to living uh, the way that Christ teaches us to. Right? And we can create hell on earth. And we want to avoid that for ourselves and for the people around us. Right, so the stakes don't have to just be about the next life, but um, it does kind of take some of the wind out of the sails about why we need to get the, the good news out, right? If you think everybody's gonna end up in the, in the same place. Along with that, uh, an objection, another objection is that there's no transformation, right? Selfish, greedy people can just stay as selfish and greedy as they want, and then they can be selfish and greedy in heaven. Um, Right, that that doesn't seem right either. Right? That, that we want people to, to be changed uh, if they're going to be with God. And but along with that it kind of raises the question of well, what about selfish, greedy Christians? Right, uh, are they going to be transformed in the next life, or do they just get in and they're just as stingy and grumpy as as they were here? Um, what if hell is part of that process of working that out? Um, mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's another part of that. But then going back to justice, right? To say everybody goes to heaven, not fair, right? It's not, it's not just, um, right? Justice is important. That is a central concept. When, when scripture talks about righteousness, it's the same word very often as, as justice, right? God is the God that cares about justice. A judgment is oriented around just, justice. And we've seen that as something that's clearly predicted. Right. Um, And we're not just thinking about, you know, uh, little stuff. I mean, real victims of real oppression. Um, Don't they deserve God to do something about that? Uh, Something is necessary. Now, the question is what? But, right, uh, we, whatever view we have of of how this works, there has to be justice involved in it. Right. And so it's not a a way to avoid that. And yet, on the other hand, right? We actually have a parable where Jesus talks about uh, some people who earned a reward that didn't seem as fair as some other people, right? Some workers worked all day, and they got the same wages as some people who worked for just an hour. And they obviously, our our response when we read that is, well, that's not fair, right? Um, Because we're thinking ourselves as the ones who, well, we put in the work. Um, And, you know, I, I don't know how much that applies to this discussion, but I think it does help us to be reminded that God is free to do what God wants. But in this case, and this is the pattern we're going to see, God is free to be generous, right? God can do what God wants, but God uh, consistently does what is more merciful, not what's more wrathful. Um, so God is just, but is our standard of justice the same?
1: Well, that last one you talked about, that to, to think about it that way, it, you have to stop and think. And, and really ask yourself, well, why am I trying to live the right kind of life? Why am I trying yeah. to do the right things? Why am I trying to do these things? If I feel that way towards someone that, that has not uh, put as much effort as I have, uh, so to speak. So it, it, at that point, we begin to, to uh, think that we are earning our salvation rather than just taking advantage of what Jesus did. So so yeah, we, that, I think that that parable is really a good one because it really makes us examine why we do what we do. Yeah how much we think we deserve it and, and that's right. And
0: it's, it's tricky and it's nuanced, right? We want justice and that's good and we God should do that. but how often we understand justice as well as God does, that that gets tricky, right? And, and well, we'll
1: justice if we got justice, then we'd all be yeah we're we all would make luck, it
0: right like well, we would
1: make it so we're even worthy too here right so it's like I mean that's week. the whole uh, the whole deal I mean it, it we mm-hmm. don't really want justice not if yeah, we we're arguing really about really who gets listed, through right? like, well, it's, <laughs> it's always a gift yeah
0: um, so you know thinking about this this idea of everyone's off the hook imagine if a judge just decided you know what I'm not going to sentence anybody anymore you know or the president just instantly pardons everybody. Who's in jail? Every convicted criminal, right? Uh, At face value, that's that's not really a great thing, right? You can see there's problems with that. Now, in some cases, that would be good because there's people that are wrongly imprisoned, and so there would be just. Um, But really, the question gets to okay. So, what's the purpose of our of our justice system, right? And how can we consider hell just? So, here we want to talk about the the purpose of punishment. so moving from the, uh, you know, world of, of prison and that sort of thing, thinking about um, uh, with children, right? Why do we punish or discipline our children? What's the purpose
1: of that? Change behavior. Some do versus others. would you say? Change, change, change behavior. Yeah, right. We want them to change. I mean, you may. And... and... And discipline can take the form of many different things. Punishments just happens to be one of them, but there could be other
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, the sorts of and types of um, of discipline. So I think, yeah, I think we've really you know, messed up with that particular word. We really don't know what that means, and it, and it, and it's really, I think, caused some problems with with churches and with Christians not understanding the concept of discipline.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a good thing. Right. It, it, and
1: yes, yes.
0: Good. end in mind, right. Think about the end, the goal, um, the goal of discipline is, is good and right. Punishment is such a flexible word. Right. And, and how we're understanding and defining that is, is kind of the key here, but with our kids, I mean, it's the same thing, right? We punish because we're trying to teach them something or to not do these things again, because it's hurting them or it's hurting other people or it's, they're not going to grow and to be the person they want to be. If your reason for punishing is they made me angry. And so I was angry and I, you know, did this, or they, they offended me and made me upset. And so I wanted to take it out on them. You can all pretty much hopefully agree. Those are bad reasons to punish, right? You don't punish out of anger. And the reason it's bad is because it's focused on you, not on the child. You don't really care about changing them. It's, well, I felt this way. And so I wanted to deal with that. And so punishing is a way to make me feel better, right? Uh, That kind of discipline is not good. But on the other side, just permitting everything just like, well, you know, do whatever you want. You know, it's all, all's fair, all's forgiven. That's not good parenting either, right? Um, If George hits Betsy, then, you know, I should step in and do something about it because um, I don't want him to do that, right? That's the goal. And so this is helpful. I bring this up to think about how God disciplines or what God's punishment is about. Uh, Jesus in Matthew, and he encourages us to think about well, what would you do as a parent there? It's about generosity. Uh, but I think that is uh, that goes into a lot of areas, right? The, you know, think about what you would do and then realize that God actually is going to do better than that, right? He's, I think he says there, you who are evil would don't give bad gifts to your kids when they ask for good. So, and, and God is better than that. So, right, if our standard is here, we shouldn't think God is down here, God's gonna be up here. Um, Which, however, a lot of views seem to go that way. So now we wanna think about some different Greek terms here, right? Like I said, punishment, what what we mean by that is, um, it seems a little flexible, and so it's helpful to know what some of the New Testament writers were talking about. Uh, So one word is paidei or paideia, right? And this word means correction, uh, or discipline, or instruction, uh, a good passage that where this word is used a lot is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. Uh, I'm not going to read all of it, but um, you can go and look at that, because that's where, he, he, along with what we we're just saying, the Hebrews writer is making the same analogy of, right, you discipline your children, and they don't like it at the time, but it's, it's, for, it's for good, right? The Lord disciplines those whom we love and chastises every child whom he accepts especially pro- quoting Proverbs, um, all right? So there, God's discipline has the purpose of teaching us to do better, all right? Uh, another word is temoria, um, and that's the idea of like revenge or vengeance. Um, it is more of, of torment. That's the idea of, of punishment that's about satisfying the one who was offended, uh, and this word is really not used to describe what God does. Uh, I think it is hypothetically mentioned in Hebrews 10, 29. Um, but as, as many early writers pointed out, that's not uh, a word that is associated with God's kind of punishment. But another word that is used is uh, colossus. Um, and that word can mean chastisement or discipline to mean punishment, but in the sense that it's trying, again, to teach the offender uh, to learn, right? Um, and so that's the word that we see in Matthew 25, that first verse that we looked at, the eternal punishment. Um, the word there clearly in Greek uh, does not mean this taking revenge. It's, it's trying to teach them something so that they can, can change. Uh, it's also the word that's used in 1 John 4 right? Uh, Fear has to do with with punishment. And so the sense of this this punishment as corrective is often lost in translation. And even early on, you know, once some of the early Christian writers lost sight of the Greek, um, they missed that as well, right? Uh, But Greek clearly distinguishes between temoria, which is vengeance, which God does not do, and colossus, which is uh, about chastising and disciplining, um, which God does do, right? Um, So going back to that Matthew 25 verse, how does that affect how we read the phrase age-lasting punishment, right? What's the point of discipline if there's no way to change anymore, right? If you can't really learn anything, right? So again, we're seeing that same phrase can actually work in that corrective, purifying view of, of what God does in the end as well right? It's, it's actually uh, pretty flexible. Uh, and so there were some early uh, leaders in the church who still spoke Greek, who knew it, that, that took that term and even that, that specific verse in that way, that that's what God's punishment is doing, even in the end. So I want to think, again, we're thinking about justice here, and some more modern terms that are often used to think about this are retributive justice and restorative justice right? Retributive justice is like that temoria, right? That it's about vengeance. It's getting revenge. Uh, You did something wrong, so you need to suffer for it, right? No real goal other than you did bad, so I want something bad to happen to you. Um, That's easier, right? But it's also less mature. Again, it's about about the one who's offended. It doesn't take much work, right? That's an eye for an eye is very much that that view, In fact, you took my eye, so I'm going to do worse to you. Um, that's that's I think that's human nature. Um, so we shouldn't expect that God is is going to be like that. Restorative justice, though, is is about making the person who did something wrong learn, so they are restored back to community, and so they can can actually do better. That takes more effort. Right? It's not as easy as just uh, hitting them back, but it's more effective, right? In the long run, uh, and we see this played out in, in various different. Uh, justice systems around the world, those that focus more on restorative justice, uh, people tend to actually change and not go back to a life of of crime, don't repeat the same mistakes. And so I would argue that that's what God does. God is about restorative justice, not retributive justice. And the reason this is important to me is, I mean, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, right? Where, well, if we think God does this, then we're going to do that. And if we do that, then that's how we're going to see God, right? And I think for the most part, we have uh, assumed God is retributive, right? He's about getting vengeance, and so that's the kind of people that we are. Um, America is, is pretty addicted to retributive justice, right? And it's often not very just. We have the highest incarceration rate in the entire world, um, and we also have a high number of repeat offenses, right? We wanna to be tough on crime, but it doesn't actually do much to de- decrease crime. Whereas other countries focus more on restorative justice, and um, they have fewer people in jail, and it, it makes a difference. And another side of this is like, think about how many uh, revenge fantasy movies there are that you've probably seen, right? Where somebody does something bad, they kill his dog, and so he's gonna go on a murder spree, um, right? <laughs> that's not that's not an exaggeration. That is the plot of a movie that we saw once and uh, was kind of terrible, um, right? But that's just, that's kind of our mindset of, they get you, you gotta get them back um, just because, they deserve it. And so I think yeah. we should think God is better than that, right? Yeah,
1: yeah the Clint Eastwood, Clint Eastwood syndrome. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, right? That's, we think of that, and, and we say, well, that's justice, right? Well, is it really? right? Not, it doesn't seem like it's God's justice to me. Another part of justice, like I mentioned earlier, is that it needs to fit the crime, right? Um, and so what crime could justify uh, justly deserve being tortured forever? right? Well, that doesn't really seem like there's much that could do that. And the only way that it was later, uh, I guess medieval theologians could justify this, uh, justify eternal torment or torture is, well, let's base it on the one who's offended on, because it offends God and God is eternal, so the punishment has to be eternal rather than the offense, what people actually did. Um, But that was very much their worldview where it's all about satisfaction, right? An offense needs to be satisfied, which again is very, I would say wrongly, uh, worked its way into how we understand Jesus' death. Right? God does not need to be satisfied. Um, God doesn't need or demand blood. That's that's a, an idea we interpreted, like I said, mostly from medieval theology. It's not really scriptural. Um, and so justice is is more than that. And, and so we want to think about God being consistent, right? Do we think God changes in the end, or does God stay the same? Um, I think we would all agree that God disciplines and corrects in this life. But then we kind of think, well, but then in the end, God suddenly just wants revenge, right? And, and just wants people to pay for what they've done. Um, Are we more forgiving than God? God, Jesus tells us, forgive 70 times, seven times, right? More where you can't even count anymore. God, Jesus says to love your enemies, but apparently, does God not do that at some point, right? Does God's uh, love for enemies end at some point? Uh, or is God consistent? So that gets into the next section. I know we're, we're getting close to time. Hopefully I can get all this in. <laughs> uh, thinking about the mystery of God and the consistency of God. Right? Because a response that, that I've seen many times when you get to this point of talking about, um, well, is, is this just or not? People say, well, who are you to question God? Right? Uh, and uh, a favorite verse that I see people go to is Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Uh, if you want to turn over there, we'll look at this real quick. And this isn't just about this particular issue. I see this in a lot of theological debates when people uh, are trying to shut down the argument. Uh, they'll quote these, these verses. Isaiah 55, uh, verses 8 and 9. Uh, so this is God speaking through Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord Whereas the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts All right and the way that verse those verses are used is to say look God is smarter than you God is above you so uh, stop asking questions All right um, but what's usually happening is people are paying themselves in this corner where they, they're presenting this terrible, unloving, unforgiving portrait of God, and then say, well, and if you try and push back on it, say, well, God's ways are higher than yours, right? So it's not my fault that you can't understand it, and someday we will. It's, um, it's like I said, he used to shut down the argument. But actually, if you read the previous verse, verse 7, uh, it actually totally changes the context. Uh, he says, let the wicked forsake their way, and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Me, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Right? Again, the point is God is more merciful than you expect. Right? Because his ways are higher, that doesn't just mean they're different. It means he's more forgiving. Right? That's what higher means in that specific context. Right? It's not, we don't use this to, when we have a bad argument to just shut people up, it's to show, again, God's grace, God's mercy goes beyond what we would expect or sometimes even what we want. And in fact, through scripture, faithful followers do question God's justice, right? The best example of this is Abraham, who is called a friend of God and in Romans is the model of faith. When uh, uh, God says he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, um, you have this famous scene in Genesis 18 where God, where Abraham is bargaining with God, right? How about this many? But he actually says there, shall not the judge of the all the earth do what is just? Right? Abraham calls God out and says, are you going to do what's just or not? Um, which is pretty bold. And yet, Abraham, right? God doesn't contradict him. Uh, he's called a friend of God. Job and many of the Psalms, they lament when it doesn't seem like God is enacting the justice that God says he stands for. Um, and then even in Romans chapter 9, Paul, that, he has a verse there uh, in 19 to 24 of Romans 9, where he does seem to say, like, well, who are you to question God, right? Um, could, couldn't God just create uh, people that he wants to destroy? All of that is hypothetical, right? Paul does not actually believe that. We could have a longer discussion about Romans 9 through 11. But you have to go through chapter 11. There is where you see his conclusion that it, it ends with mercy again. And so along with this, we also think about just the nature of language, right? Do words have a consistent meaning or not? Does the word goodness or justice or love have a consistent meaning, right? If our view is, well, it means this, but sometimes God can do this, and it's still good, even though by every other standard, we would call that bad, right? God is love, but sometimes love means encouraging genocide and internal torture, right? At that point, the word love has actually lost all meaning, and if God's goodness is beyond what we can understand at all, it's impossible, how can we imitate it? Right? We have to be able to right, understand God's goodness in some way. It has to have some consistent meaning, or it has no meaning. That's just the way that language works. And again, God's goodness and love, they're mysterious because they're greater than what we imagine, not because sometimes they're the opposite. Right? That's, again, not how these terms work. Right? Many seem wrongly convinced. They have to defend a view of God, a God who is plainly evil. Um, They're not actually defending God, they're defending a faulty view, but they've uh, just bought into that and and can't see the problems. So we want to just be honest that when something sounds awful and that sounds off to us, it's okay to to push a little harder and see, does that line up with who God is as revealed in Christ? Um, What's most important to you about God? Um, right. There are a lot of, uh, this is something I talked about in one of my daily devotionals this week. There's a lot of attributes that we associate with God. Um, but is it more important that God be omnipotent and sovereign and free and powerful, or is it more important that God is goodness or even that God is love? As I would argue from first John four, God is love. So that is primary. Everything else is understood through the lens of that. Uh, if your God is primarily about power, um, that God doesn't necessarily have to be good, and, and the only reason to worship that God is to save your own skin, and that's not the God I believe in, and I hope you don't either. Right, God is love. Um, fear has to do with punishment. Perfect love casts out fear. That's First John. Um, and so we think of God as love, and love has to have some consistent meaning, and we see that best in Christ, and um, that love goes beyond what we might expect sometimes. Um, next week we'll continue talking about this and see, uh, so what do we do with this? But I want to end with a parable. I know we're kind of over time a little bit. We started late, so it's okay. Um, this is a parable called the parable of the the king's offer. And pull it up. Uh, right. Jesus used parables to help us, you know, get out of some of the ways we look at things. And so this is, um, I'm just going to read it and, uh, Leave you with that and see what you think it is trying to say and if it makes sense. A fabulously wealthy king looks out the window of his castle one day. In the distance, he sees a beautiful peasant living in the slums. His heart is ravished and he thinks, this is the perfect bride for my son. Unlike other wicked worldly kings, he cannot simply abduct her and make her a slave of his son. So along with his entourage and his son, they make their way out of the palace into the squalor beyond the moat, searching hut to hut until they find her. The offer is made. Young lady, says the king, this is my beloved son, the prince of this kingdom and heir to all that is mine. I humbly beseech you to come out of your life of poverty and oppression and to join my son in holy matrimony, enjoying all the benefits that come with a princess's life. The offer seems too good to be true. All she needs to do is consent to the proposal. But there's a hitch. The king continues. There is a deadline. If you don't say yes by a certain date, I will personally arrest you and put you in our dungeon where torturers will fillet you alive for endless ages, keeping you alive so that your torment is never ending. Moreover, after the deadline, you cannot change your decision. The dishonor of your rejection is too great to warrant any second chance. The Consequences of refusal are without mercy and utterly irreversible. As they're leaving, the prince turns and says, oh yes, please hurry, and know that I will love you forever and for always. Until the deadline. So, what is that saying about God? He who has ears to hear, let them hear. All right. Uh, hopefully this raises a lot of questions. My, uh, that's my goal with a lot of this. Uh, we'll continue with this next week. And in a couple of weeks, we'll have a lot of time. Uh, where not just about this issue, but, but with everything we've talked about. Uh, if you still have questions, uh, some of you turning questions at the beginning, we'll, we'll look at those as well. So, thanks everyone.